I want to welcome you once again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if you're a guest with us, we are honored that you would choose to spend uh, a Sunday morning uh, worshiping with us. And, and I just want to highlight again what Kevin said. Um, this is a day that's special to us in, in, the, in the life of the church. Um, kind of stand Sunday talking about vulnerable children um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a big deal. And so I'm, I'm thankful that the church has kind of come together on this, on this, this Sunday and recognize this to, to keep that in front of us as we uh, move forward. And on the Foster Christmas Party, um, it's a big deal. And um, there's, there, there are teams that kind of get put together to oversee certain elements. And so if you think you may want to jump into that, I encourage you to sign up sooner rather than later so those teams can kind of start forming and the leaders who are leading that can uh, kind of put you in the right spots. Well, today we're continuing on walking through the book of First Peter, and um, we are um, in, in the beginning of chapter two, and we'll have one more week of First Peter, and then we'll be um, jumping into Advent for a few weeks, and then we'll come back to First Peter um, again um, in January. But let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, as always, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that you've chosen to reveal yourself um, to humanity through your word and that we can go to it when we want clarity on who you are and and how you want us to live and um, how we can follow you and how we can know you. And so I pray as we look at primarily these three verses this morning, I pray you would change us, that we would believe that uh, this word is is powerful, the scriptures are powerful, they, they, they can change us. And I pray you would do that this morning. Above everything else, I pray that your son would be lifted up and that we would make much of him today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So last week, we looked at the end of chapter 1. And Peter's primary charge to us, his primary exhortation to us, was to love one another. And Blake uh, told us that this is, this is like our marching orders. This is something as exiles, as people who find ourselves in this world, but we're also citizens of heaven, and we're in this world um, as exiles. And we should feel that, and there's tensions there, and that's what we've discussed through this book. And one of the primary things uh, Peter highlights here is that the way we love one another, the way we treat one another um, is one, a way that we can make it through the world when things are difficult as exiles, but also it is the primary way that unbelievers are going to see um, what God is like through our relationships and how we treat one another. That was last week, and this week as we move into chapter 2, it's a little bit misleading, but it, uh, Peter's continuing on in the same train of thought. He's not moving on just because it's a new chapter. So he's still talking about how we treat one another um, in this context of love. And today he's going to give us two other things that he's calling us to do. Number one, he's going to tell us to remove the things that prevent us from loving one another, the things that are, are opposite of love. And he's also going to tell us to long for or crave pure spiritual milk. And that second one, I think, is the, is the most important exhortation or, or command he's going to give us, to long for pure spiritual milk. And we're going to talk about uh, what that looks like. And, and in this illustration, uh, Paul, I mean, I'm sorry, Paul Peter um, gives us a very um, vivid um, illustration of a newborn baby longing for his or her mother's milk. 
this is a very strong illustration, and, and even though, um, if you, if, even if you've never um, had the experience of, of being a mom or dad to a baby, um, you know how strong that can be. Can be. And I think it's fitting that it, on this, this, this um, stand Sunday, when we're talking about vulnerable children, that this is the passage we're preaching on. We didn't plan that, but it's interesting how um, this illustration is front and center in this passage this morning. So we're going to talk about this idea of craving, of hungering of longing for something. And, and I think um, the, the best way to kind of talk through that is, is using this idea of, of hungering or craving food. And one of the strongest things we can crave kind of in the area of food is sugar, right? Sugar is one of those things that we crave. Some studies have shown similarities in the addiction kind of levels of sugar on the same level as some of the strongest drugs out there, heroin, cocaine, some dietitians have shown that, that, that our craving for sugar can equal the craving for those drugs. And those of you who've tried this have experienced. Have you, if you've ever tried to cut sugar out, it is really, really hard. Those first few days, maybe even the first week, it is brutal. Like headaches, fatigue. You're just angry at the world because you've cut sugar out, right? But it gets a little bit better. It starts to get a little, maybe a few days in, uh, hopefully by week two, uh, it changes, and your taste buds start to recalibrate. And the foods that maybe you've kind of forgotten what they, they taste like, they become more flavorful. One dietitian says this about this process. Natural sugars found in foods like fruit, vegetables, and dairy goods have a great effect on the palate. Whereas when loads of extra sugar or, or kind of fake sugar were in the mix in our diet with those other things, uh, those less assertively sweet foods couldn't compete. And for example, she goes on to say, an apple tastes like candy. I don't know if I go that far. Um, but it's sweeter, right? Y'all have been there, right? It's sweeter. And then she goes on to say, the, the, the onions are sweet. Like, you lost me there. Like, you lost me there to say onions will ever be sweet. She says, almonds are sweet. She says, once you take sugar away from your diet, your palate recalibrates, and you start tasting natural sugars again, like her in fruit. Now, I've had the same experience when I've tried to do this. And um, one uh, really <laughs> funny illustration was um, these, these guys that we support, this team of, of church planters in the Czech Republic, they came here 18 months, two years ago, and they were here for about a week. And they, they lived with families here. And you could expect that they thought our, our kind of our food choices were far, far too sweet for them. And those of you who grew up in other countries uh, may feel the same way or that you've lived in other countries. Like, we eat really sweet stuff here. And, but you may think they were like, yeah, like the cookies and the brownies and stuff would really kind of like be too much for them. That wasn't it. They actually couldn't eat our bread. Like, they thought our bread was too sweet. They couldn't eat sandwiches because they felt it was like eating a piece of dessert like, like why you ate what was ever supposed to be on that sandwich. It, that even normal bread was way too sweet for them. And so there's something about our palate that becomes kind of addictive or leans into things that even if they're not good for us, if we're not careful. And Peter wants us to know that what we crave spiritually, what we desire, long for spiritually is of utmost importance. Maybe the most important thing. It's the driver. It's the motivator for how we live. Now, much of our fight for freedom and joy 
and identity in our lives is tied back to whether we're going to crave the things of God or the, the other things that the world has to offer. And we want to crave the things of God so much so that those other things lose power over us. But how does that happen? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, this is really hard to wake up in the morning and crave God above everything else. Because there's a thousand things coming at you that are kind of tempting for us to crave, for, to want more than we want God. And Peter is going to try to help us with this this morning. And we're going to start in verse 3 of these three verses. We're going to start in verse 3 and work backwards because I think it fits better with Peter's logic here. And each of these three verses will kind of form a point in this sermon. So let's look at verse 3. Peter says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And he stays with the the tasting, the sensing of, of food there. He's using kind of that illustration. And what he wants us to do here, he wants us to um, reflect. He wants us to ask the question, is this true of us? Is this true of me? Have I really tasted the Lord, that the Lord is good? Do I know him? Have I experienced him in such a way that I can say he's good? He is so good. Like to be with him is good. And there's this expectation that Peter's kind of riding with that he kind of expects us to have this experience before he gives us the commands that he's going to give us moving forward. We're designed, we're created by God to thirst, to hunger for certain nutrients that make us grow. We're hardwired like that. We have a creator that's hardwired us in that way. He's created us with an appetite for him. This is Genesis 1 and 2, right? Before sin came into the world, we craved him. We wanted to spend time with him and him alone. We were, we were made to find our fulfillment and satisfaction in him. And I would say for those of you who maybe are, haven't been in church for a while or, or maybe aren't Christians, I would just say that there, there's, this is, there's a proof here for this idea, right? Like, like when, you, when you observe a great... Um, athlete do their thing, like the greatest of the great, or a great artist or musician, and you're sitting there witnessing what they do, there's a sense of awe and reverence that kind of comes over you to see that someone do what they do at the highest level. There's this like craving for more because you're getting an echo or like a shadow of God and his creation at the highest level in in that thing. This is why we often watch these kinds of people with our mouths open and in awe and wonder. And we're like, I I could never do those things. Or another example is that we all want love and acceptance, right? We are hardwired to want to be loved and want to be accepted by someone. That's inside of all of us. We want that. We're made to want that. Even if you're not a Christian, I would challenge you that you want that. You want that. The question is, where are we going to find that? Where are you going to find that? This is the craving that we have, that's been put inside of us by God. Another one that we've talked about here before is when we see injustice. When we see injustice in the world, it's almost like this automatic response to say, that isn't right, that needs to change, how should we change that? And we get mad. Well, where does that come from, right? It comes from God hardwiring us to be able to recognize right from wrong because we're created by a supremely moral God and a just God. 
So we're all built with these, these cravings. We're hardwired to want things in a, in, a, in a sinless world, right, that will give us growth, that will give us love, identity, value, freedom, joy. But sin gets in the way of that. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has the famous quote. He says, if I find in my, myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. Right? So if you can't satisfy your desires on earth, that's actually a proof that you were made for another world, that you were made to be a citizen of heaven. Peter, most commentators think that he has to be reflecting, I'm here in verse 3, back to Psalm 34, 8, um, when, he, when he talks about tasting that the Lord is good. Listen to the psalmist here. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Almost verbatim, Peter writes. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, to taste and to see who God is. And so what we saw in chapter 1 are these identity statements, these things that have happened to us as a result of our faith. Jesus, the person and work of Jesus on the cross, gives us an identity as we have faith in that. We see 1 Peter 1, 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We were ransomed. How do we taste and see that the Lord is good? We were ransomed. 1 Peter 1, 23, looked at this last week, I believe. Yeah, last week. Since you have been born again, there it is again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. All of these things show us that we've, we've tasted. If you're, if you're in Christ, if you have faith in him, you've tasted that the Lord is good. I love this quote from Jonathan Edwards. I, I've quoted this before in sermons, but I love it because it's, it's, it falls, falls along right with what we're talking about. Listen to what Edwards says. There's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and the beauty of that holiness and grace. Here's another example. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. And what he's saying is here, it's take honey, the example he uses. It's one thing to be an expert in honey, to, to know the chemical compounds of honey, to know that it's golden and it's sticky and here are the components that it's made of. I bet but those things aren't going to elicit any craving or desire or emotional response. What's going to elicit an emotional response for honey? Tasting it. Tasting how sweet it is. Tasting when it falls on your tongue, it just melts in your mouth. That will make you desire more honey. That will make you an evangelist for honey. That will make you one who wants to get others behind and taste this honey. Not knowing the prop chemical properties of honey. That's not going to excite you. The only way you're going to get excited about something like honey is to taste it, is to experience it. So Edwards is saying the same thing with God. And we've all experienced this, this love that God has for us in Christ, those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are Christians. He loved us. He loved us when we were unlovable. The scriptures say that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You can replace their sinners with rebels, enemies, people who wanted nothing to do with God. He died for that version of you, not the cleaned up version of you. When in your past, when you look back and you've needed comfort and he showed up, you've tasted the goodness of God. 
When you've needed guidance and direction and you've prayed for him and he's given you wisdom, you've tasted him. When he's given you strength to persevere in really, really hard situations in your life, you've tasted his character. You've tasted his strength, his power. When, when you've used a gift that he's given you or a skill in service of him and you just feel like something comes alive in you when you do that thing, he's put that inside of you. You've tasted it. You've, you've seen him in that way. So what should we do? This is Peter's logic, right? If we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, what should we do? Verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So here's the main command or imperative that Peter wants us to, to show us here. Crave spiritual nourishment. Long for it. You can also translate it yearn for it. Desire it. This is an intense word in the original language. And you can see that the familial terms here, right? You see the, the newborn infants here. You, last, last week we saw the family, right? We were born again into this family. Next week we're going to talk more about being connected as a family. So let's talk about this idea, this illustration he uses. He could have used a lot of illustrations, right? But he chose to use this, this vivid imagery of a, of a newborn brave baby craving um, pure spiritual milk. Right, the milk from his or her mom. This is the type of Sunday that if, if you're a little one, if you have one in here and he or she starts crying, just leave him in here, right? This is going to be a, a live illustration, right, of, of what happens. If, so feel free to just stay in here if they start crying, right? But think about it, right? What, an, an infant, a newborn baby, he or she cannot stay alive without his or her mom's milk or a bottle, like, they are not going to stay alive. They desperately, in those early days, need all the nourishment they can get. And they will let you know. Right? They will let you know that this is an act of survival for them. You see, ever see a family that has a newborn, that newborn is owning that family, controlling them. Like, the schedule, everything. It's just everything gets sucked into the vortex of this little seven-pound human is controlling this family. Why? Because this baby has needs, and no one else can meet their, they, they can't meet their own needs. So they wail, they cry, they can't get on a sleep schedule. And a lot of this is because they're craving this nourishment from milk. It's a matter of survival. Now come back over to our spiritual life, right? Like, like this isn't, a, he's not trying to make this um, hyperbolic stretch here, right? This isn't hyperbole. He wants us to truly crave the things of God like a newborn baby would crave Milk for sustenance, for things we need. Right? This is our goal. This is as we are Christ followers, we should long and our aim should be to crave the things of God like a baby craves milk. So let's talk about this milk. He talks as pure spiritual milk. Now, some commentators think this is just talking about God's word. That could be right. It's definitely not less than God's word, right? But I, I think I agree with other commentators who, who think this is more general. Like we should just crave the things of God, right? Um, other, prayer, um, connecting with other believers, right? Serving God, being a part of a church. Like all of these things are a part of the life of a believer and can highlight and cause us to experience who God is. So yes, spending time in God's words at the top of that list probably, but there are other things I believe that comes into that when we talk about this pure spiritual milk, God's blessings, his mercy, his grace, his power his patience, all of these things we should experience 
um, as pure spiritual milk. We like we talked about holiness last week. Here's where kind of the, the cycle of formation comes in, right? When we think of longing for pure spiritual milk, um, we often think of like, okay, when we pursue God, we need to like lay aside all of these things, and it's going to be really, really hard, and the whole Christian life is just going to be a grind, and there's not going to be a lot of joy and freedom that comes in because this is really, really hard. Now, there's some element of truth to that, but, but this is when, when, we, when we finally taste something that's good for us, and we build habits around our lives of the things of God, we begin to taste that. We taste how good it is. To use the food analogy, we taste, we, 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 we understand how it makes our body feel. Right? We feel good spiritually when we start taking in the things of God. So those other things that we normally would look to, they lose our grip on us. They taste, they taste different. They taste maybe even bad because we've tasted that the Lord is good. It's a cycle. The more we intake the things of God, the more we realize how good they are for us, and we want more of that. It's this cycle. The world offers us fake sweeteners and additives. <clears throat> that do not satisfy us past the initial taste. And we'll realize over time that these things are poor substitutes for the real nourishment that God knows we need. His word, prayer, fellowship with other believers. We can make a big list there. And we begin to crave and long for those things rather than those substitutes. This is why Peter tags on, this is how we grow up. Like growing up in our salvation. How we grow in our salvation is by craving pure spiritual milk or the things of God. Now, he's going to get more practical here. Let's go back to that first verse. This is that first kind of command or imperative he gives us in this passage, verse 1. So, there's that connecting word we, we see, we've seen so much in 1 Peter already. Therefore, so that. So, when we see that, we can go back to chapter 1, the born-again language, the living hope language, so that all of those things... And then we also, we can go forward in verses 2 and 3. So, because you've tasted that the Lord is good. So, that's all built into that word, so. Because of all of that, put away, there's the command, put it away. All malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. There's five things there he gives, he lists there. So, the hunger for God starts with the taste, turns into craving, changes our appetite, and then it leads to transformation. And here's where the rubber meets the road of transformation. And what he's giving here is this list of things that we should be aware of. Right? We, he's talked about, we've talked about the imperative, like the indicative imperative language in this. So we, we, he's given us identity statements. This is who you are because of the person work of Jesus. And the, the, uh, the imperative now is in light of that, here's what you do. So this is a verse of here's what we go do. We put away. It's active. This isn't a let go, let God situation, right? Neither is much in the scriptures in that case. This is, there's always work. There's always action for us to take. This is offensive, not defensive, to put it in another word. So he uses the word put away. <clears throat> Paul uses the same language in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. It's like it's, it has the imagery of taking off clothes, put, taking off and putting on. Because of who we are, take off those old clothes and put on these new clothes. This is what Peter is saying. Right? And the first word he uses here is malice. Often when we see a list of things in the scriptures, the first thing is often the most important or more of an umbrella type word. And we get that here, malice. <clears throat> this, it just, this, if you look up um, literally what this means, it's just wickedness. Right? So it starts off strong. Put away wickedness. Put it away. 
And then he goes into deceit, right? Deceit. And deceit here um, means, means like spinning things around to make yourself look better, right? Kind of adjusting the truth. It doesn't have to be massive things, just adjusting the truth here and there to make yourself look a little bit better. Maybe changing the de- details of a story to make you like the, the, the protagonist or the hero of the story. Maybe taking sole credit for something when you know other people also had something involved in that, but you want to take the sole credit to kind of lift yourself up. It's like little deceiving type things. He says, put it away. Next, hypocrisy. It's like pretending to be somebody you're not. And oftentimes, uh, I think Christians get, this word gets thrown at Christians for being hypocrites when we maybe aren't living the way we should live. And there's some truth in that. Um, but often, it's, it, it's hypocrisy when we walk around and act like we're better than everybody else. Like, we have no struggles. We're good. We don't want to talk about our junk. And so we kind of put off this, 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 this image of perfection. And so, of course, when we fail, people are like, you're a hypocrite. Because we were walking around like we had it all together. But a Christian should be humble to know, no, I, I fall short. Like, I need God's grace and his mercy daily to live the life that he calls me to live. It's the spirit living through me that's doing these things, not me. I have nothing to boast about. I have nothing to brag about. Yes, we fail, but if, you don't, if, if you're not walking around self-righteously, you're actually walking around saying, you know, being open with, hey, I'm, I'm a sinner in need of grace every day. Right? So it's not that we fall short. It's that when we're hypocrites, when we pretend like we're, we're not going to fall short or we're not falling short, and then we fall short, that's when we become hypocrites. So he says, put that away. Next is envy. Right, envy is, is, is resenting someone else because of some benefit they have. And it's usually birthed out of comparison, your really unhealthy version of comparison. Where love, talking about last week, love wants what's best for other people and rejoices when someone else um, has success or blessing, even if it's at your own cost. We, that's love. Right? Envy is we want what someone else has. We want that blessing So we're envious of them. We want that. We hope they fail so that we might look better or have what they have. Lastly is slander. It's very clear. This is just trying to tear another person down with words, right? One thing you'll notice about all these, they're all connected to to relationships. And this is why it's coming out of love. Last week, we saw that he said, love one another. In the church, love one another. This is how the world's going to see what God is like is how you treat one another. So he's saying these five things, like if these five things are happening in the body between brothers and sisters, and I would say this goes to the world as well, outside the church, but for sure inside the church, put it away. Fight these things. Root them out. Cut them out. If you recognize these things inside of you or maybe people closest to you. So experiencing God's character and grace in the gospel, like when we think of the gospel, right? We often think of it, it saves us from the the penalty of sin in the past. Theologians call that justification, right? We often go there first, which which is true. But what the gospel also saves us from when we believe in it is the power that sin has over us in the present. And this is what Peter's getting at. As we experience more of God's grace in the gospel, it, it, it breaks the power that sin has in our lives. It's not that we won't ever do these things at all. It's that these things in this this list won't have power over us. We won't be marked by these things. We won't have the reputation of being these kinds of people if we are living in line with the truth of the gospel. He wants us to grow up in our salvation. And one of the main ways we do this is through loving each other. 
And remember the context. Remember who Peter's writing to. He's writing to exiled Christians in a world that is kind of mar- that they're feeling marginalized. They're being pushed against. Not unlike some of, some of, some of what we experience, right? And he's saying, in this moment especially, we should radically love one another. This is not the time to be infighting. This is not the time to go at each other's throats. This is the time to love. This is the time to put all that stuff away and love one another. Um, and we know this. When a community or group of people is under pressure from the outside, and right now we, we're kind of getting it at all sides, And if you were to ask me, in, in my opinion, as the church, um, this isn't the time to, to begin bickering. Or getting pulled apart, but that's what's natural, right? We start to get pulled apart. There's disunity that happens when we're facing pressure from the outside. But this is when we need loving, church-based relationships the most, is in this time we're facing. You see, Peter doesn't want us to settle for shallow, just niceness in our church life. And this isn't the kind of Christianity that Peter's advocating for, some kind of like social club Christianity where we're, we show up on Sundays, kind of do our nice religious thing, and then go home and, and kind of do whatever, right? No, he's calling us to, to fight. We're exiles. He wants to wake up. We're in this fight, and we need each other. We need to love one another. Again, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I pray that you would see what our aim is as a church. We desire to be a church that has real talk, right? We realize that we fall short. We don't want to sweep things under the rug. We want to get things out in the open. We want to deal with things. We want to talk about the hard things in the scripture. Why? Because we want the power of God through the Holy Spirit to work in us. We want to follow him in this world that we're exiles. We're, not, we're, we're trying to, to, to create an environment where we hunger for him. We thirst for him. We want to long for that pure spiritual milk. This is the kind of church environment we want to, this is what we're aiming for. This is our ambition. We want to taste and see that the Lord is good, and we want that to change us. So what do we do? What's the application here? He's already started, the verse we looked at in verse 1 there, he's already started with application, and, and, I, and I think we should, we should see this put on, put off language, right? And, and I think repentance comes into this as well. So he wants us to reflect for sure moving, when we leave this place, now and when we leave, right? He wants us to, to remember when we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and to remember that, and to cause you to drive to, 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 that to drive you back to Him, and as that happens, we begin to see those areas that we fall short. Maybe there's malice, maybe there's deceit, maybe you've been slandering another brother or sister. We begin to see those things as we move towards Him. It's like a light gets shown on those things, and it allows us to deal with Him. That's 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 the process of repentance, right? And we talked about it a few, week, a few weeks ago, but I think that's what the, the, the application is here. It's, it's repent. It's acknowledging our sin. It's remembering his holiness and his grace found in Jesus in the gospel. And, and it's receiving the forgiveness that he offers us in Jesus. And then asking the Spirit, asking God to help us overcome these things. Help us to be the kind of people who, who crave him and his things, but also the kind of people who overcome the things on this list to love one another well. And over time, as we begin to go through this process, our, our cravings begin to change. And that's the point of using this illustration. We begin to crave him more and those other things less. And this is what the process of sanctification is. It's, it's growing the rest of our lives. We get to do this process. And we'll never arrive until we die or Jesus comes back. So this is the Christian life. 
Now, I want to put a, an, an illustration that's uh, been very helpful for many people up here. We've probably put this up once a year here. And I think for this particular topic, this is, this is a perfect kind of tool and illustration. If you just put gospel cross chart in Google, this will pop up. Um, you see there's a point of conversion here. That line is the timeline. So there's a point of conversion. When we first taste and see that the Lord is good, we come to know him. And then over the course of our lives, there's two things happening at the same time. That top arrow going kind of up and up and to the right is um, a deeper, deeper knowledge of God's holiness. Another word for this is tasting and seeing that he's good, tasting his character, knowing his character, pursuing him in his word, spending time with him in prayer, spending time in church amongst other brothers and sisters in Jesus. And that line goes up, and you see the bottom line going down there, uh, down, down into the right, um, deeper and deeper knowledge of our sinfulness. We put up lists like this in front of us, even though this may be uncomfortable, right? This may be foreign to you, but this is part of growth, right? Seeing where we fall short. Where have you slandered this week? Where have you changed the truth a little bit in a story to be deceitful? When have you kind of given one of those white lies to maybe make yourself look better, right? And don't beat yourself up. Just allow the conviction of the Spirit to drive you to Him, right? Like, receive His forgiveness, and ask the Spirit to come inside of you and help you make a better decision next time. And then when you fail the next time, which you probably will, you come back and remember his grace again. And this is how the cross gets bigger in our life. And you know the cross, the gospel that's kind of the bridge between those two lines, it gets bigger. And over time, um, if, if, you know, if you happen to be able to walk for Jesus for 40 or 50 years on this earth, and if you're consistent in that, and someone was to ask you, by the time you end your life, like you're, and this is true, Imagine the gap over time. You spend time with knowing God over all those years. You're going to know him, know who he is, know his word, commune with him, experience him in your trials through life. And you're also going to become uh, more knowledgeable of your sin, right? And I'll say for those of you who are maybe in this process and you're a newer believer, like it's interesting that if you, it's not that you are becoming more sinful over time. It's that you're you're becoming more honest and knowledgeable of your own sin. Like you're digging deeper. You're doing the inner work that you start to realize, wow, I was worse off than I thought I was. Like I was saved from more junk and, and, and mess than I realized I was. And I can say that, you know, 30 year, almost 30 years since I became a Christian, and I am more aware of my sin now than I ever have been before in my life. It's not that I'm sinning more. It's I'm more aware of it. But hopefully the gospel is bigger in my life than it was in the past. So here's final words here. Um, we change the world through loving one another well. That's how we change the world. Over a long period of time, the church modeling what healthy relationships look like and the cornerstone of those relationships is love. We've got to put away some things. We've got to realize that we've, that we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and crave that pure spiritual milk. That will allow us to love the way that Peter's calling us to love. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful, again, once again, for your word. And I'm thankful that you don't let us off the hook and just say, hey, love one another and uh, remember that and, and go do that. No, you, you cause us to look inward here. Have we tasted it? Have we tasted your goodness? Is it, is it honey to us? Have we tasted you like honey that we want more? We crave what's good. 
or if we have only tasted a little bit. And those other things in this world still kind of are grabbing us and are controlling us because maybe we think those things taste better. So I pray that your spirit would help us remember your grace, remember those points in our story and time where you showed up. And I pray that would motivate us, that would, that would allow us to, have, to get the ball rolling for us to, to crave those things and to pursue you, to spend time in your word and make time in our schedules to create silence and space alone to spend time with you and experience you. And I pray through those two things you would change us. You would make us um, better lovers of brothers and sisters. Help us be loved the way you loved. The example you set out, loving those who are unlovable. I pray you would help us love in that way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.